Hello. This week, we bring you a sneak peek of a new science podcast that you might also enjoy, brought to you by the Society for Endocrinology and produced by First Create the Media, the team behind Genetics Unzipped. Presented by Georgia Mills, Hormones, the Inside Story, uncovers the truth about how hormones affect stress, sleep, body fat, fertility and almost every aspect of our daily lives and health in this new expert-led myth-busting show. Available now on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with new episodes of Genetics Unzipped after Christmas and in the meantime we'll play some of our favourites from our first series. So sit back, relax and enjoy. Hello and welcome to Hormones, the Inside Story, the brand new podcast brought to you from the Society for Endocrinology. We are going to be getting to grips with the little things inside us that are pulling the strings. I'm Georgia Mills and I've been speaking to some of the best and brightest endocrinologists, long fancy word for hormone experts, to bring you six episodes about everything from doping to jet lag and how our hormones are secretly running the show and maybe how knowing what's going on backstage can help us live better. Now, before we get to the juicy stuff, we should probably start with a quick Hormones 101. A hormone is our body's internal postage system, a way of sending messages or instructions around the body. They're small chemicals made by our endocrine glands, which sail around the body through our bloodstream before hitting a receptor, where they start making their changes. There are loads of hormones, there are about 50, and they all affect us in different ways and can also interact with each other, helping keep us alive and thriving and sometimes making us act a little bit strangely. There isn't really any aspect of life and health which isn't impacted by our hormones, which is why understanding them can help us to understand ourselves. So let's jump in to our very first topic. Are my hormones making me fat? It's no secret that our nation's waistlines are expanding. Up to two-thirds of adults in the UK are currently classed as overweight or obese. And with those extra pounds comes an increased risk of diseases ranging from heart disease and diabetes to cancer, as well as increasing the chances of ending up in hospital with COVID-19. We all come in different shapes and sizes, that's a given, but why are some of us bigger than others? And why can it be so difficult to reach and stick to the weight you want? In this episode, we'll be looking at the link between your hormones and your eating habits, with the help of some food-obsessed Labradors. Plus, can hormones explain why some types of diets just don't work? And will we ever put weight loss in a pill? Now, body weight is extremely complicated. There are social and environmental factors like poverty, discrimination and stigma, which all have a big part to play. But hormones make a big difference too. Do your hormones play a role? I think undoubtedly. This is Giles Yeo. He's a geneticist at Cambridge University who came into his area of research through slightly unconventional beginnings. My PhD, oddly enough, was on the genetics of the Japanese pufferfish fugu rupees. No, don't, don't start. Charles has stepped away from pufferfish work, for better or for worse, and is now a leading expert on genetics and body weight. So what does this have to do with hormones? Well, what your brain needs to do in order to influence your feeding behaviour is to know what is happening in your body. As with all our systems in the body, there are a whole bunch of hormones doing different things. But we do have a star performer. 
one of those hormones, those critical hormones, is going to be called leptin. So your brain needs to know, broadly speaking, two pieces of information in order to influence food intake. The first is how much fat you have. Okay, and that's important because how much fat you have is how long you would last in the wild without any food. Okay, not a problem today, but a problem in the past, for instance. So to keep our brains informed about our weight, our fat stores release leptin. So the more fat you have, the more leptin you have, and it informs your brain how much fat you have. But as well as knowing how big you are, there's something else we need to know to plan our next meal. The second piece of information that your brain needs to know is what you have just eaten and what you are currently eating. So these are your short-term signals. These signals can't be released from fat stores. They need an immediate alert from the food's point of entry. So these signals are going to come from your gastrointestinal tract, your food to poop shoot. Okay, and they're going to come from your gut. And these are going to be hormonal signals from your gut. So your brain then senses these long-term and short-term signals and influences your food intake. So your hormones tell your brain two things: how much fat you have stored and how much you have just eaten. But given that we have the same hormones in play, the same systems, why is it that some people are bigger than others? Why do some people just seem to find it so easy to keep their weight where they want it, and others have an uphill struggle? Well, to find out, we're going to step away from humans for a bit. We're a messy species in many ways, but especially when it comes to studying us, we change our behaviour when we're being watched. We're terrible at remembering what we ate and drank, and are unsurprisingly reluctant to be fed scientifically standardised meals for months on end. But luckily, there's another species that struggles with their weight, who are slightly less concerned with other people's opinions. What I tell people at parties is that I study the genetics of obesity via the medium of Labradors. This is Eleanor Raffin. She's a vet and a geneticist at Cambridge University, who's really bringing the lab into the laboratory. You can't ever predict what's going to happen when you have a canine research subject. Labradors are of interest because, as any lab owners will know, they are famously difficult pets to keep trim compared to other types of dog. Sometimes going enormous lengths just to get that sweet, sweet snack. I've got stories of you know a Labrador whose owner says that from early in the summer the dog will sit under the apple tree in the garden for hours on end because sometimes an unripe apple will fall and any food is better than no food. And it's not just labs. Pugs and retrievers are also really predisposed to being overweight. That breed-related risk is too clear to be just down to fad and fashion and what people think those dogs should look like. It's more to do with something inherent to their biology. So Eleanor and her team made it their mission to find out what was going on, with the help of some willing pet owners. We've got. Hundreds of Labrador owners who have taken the time and the effort to recruit their dogs to our our study. So they've told us about their dogs. They've taken their dogs to their vets to have them weighed, and and then they've sent us、uh, slobber samples from which we can extract DNA. One of Eleanor's experiments involves finding out how hungry a dog gets between meals, with a test I like to call the impossible sausage. We put a sausage in a box and let the dog see the sausage and put it in this kind of sealed plastic container with holes in the lid, so they can smell it but they can't get to it. A canine nightmare. 
And all Eleanor has to do is watch how long the dog tries to reach this impossible sausage. And the lengths to which some of these really highly food-motivated dogs will go to try and get to that sausage are hilarious. You know, they'll, they'll pull at it and they'll push it around and they'll pick it up and they'll yap at it and, and make a huge amount of effort. Some dogs give up fairly quickly, while others go into full-on, frenzied, mission-from-dog, my-life-depends-on-this-sausage mode. We've had to get pretty handy with the gaffer tape to try and kind of tape up those boxes. There's always a bit of um, hooliganism when you've got <laughs> dogs and food around the place. <laughs> and so Eleanor took this behaviour. She also looked at the dog's body weight and the levels of fat. And then she started looking for clues in the dog's DNA, their genetic material. And she found something. Quite a lot of Labradors and even more flat-coated retrievers carry a mutation in a gene called POMC. POMC is a gene that carries the instructions to make another hormone called, stay with me on this, pro-opio-melanocortin, which you'll be pleased to hear I'm not going to be saying again. A genetic change or mutation in this gene is really strongly linked with some changes on the dog's behaviour around food. So what we found in both Labradors and flat-coated retrievers was that dogs that carried this mutation tended to be more highly, what we call highly food motivated. So this genetic mutation seems to make dogs hungrier, which makes them more likely to gain weight. But how does the gene make the dog hungrier? Well, this is where hormones come in. Remember leptin, the hormone produced by fat? When you've got more fat laid down for a period of fasting to come, you produce more leptin. And that leptin, as is the nature of hormones, goes off in the bloodstream and acts elsewhere in the body, primarily in the case of, of the system we're talking about, in the brain, in an area of the brain called the hypothalamus, where it acts on its receptor. Leptin trickles up to the brain, where it triggers a chain reaction involving even more hormones, which eventually hit receptors in the brain telling you to eat less food. So more fat in your body, release more leptin, tells your brain you don't need to eat so much. Ergo, you feel less hungry. And that's obviously quite a sensible kind of um, mechanism to, to act as a break on hunger when the body's energy reserves are full. But for our dogs with a broken POMC gene, it doesn't work like it should. And when the POMC mutation is there in the dogs, it means that that mechanism doesn't work properly. So the system that's supposed to tell you when the tank is full doesn't kick in. And this means it doesn't matter how much fat you've got, your brain thinks you need food. The upshot of all of that is that the mechanism that should say, right, we've got good energy reserves, is broken. And so these dogs, even when they've got big energy reserves when they're overweight, when they're fat, don't have that break on hunger and continue to pursue food. This means it's not a case of just being greedy. It's a case of never, ever reaching that contented, full feeling after a big meal. And so these are dogs who, who kind of scavenge more vigorously in the home environment and who, who kind of beg their owners for food more often and, and who are more prone to stealing food and things like that. Mastered the puppy dog eyes. Exactly, exactly. And anyone who's got a dog will know that it's very hard to resist that kind of big brown eye treatment for too long. If, you, if you've got a snack and you know your dog will be pathetically grateful if they get some extra food. So some dogs, like labs and retrievers, can have really strong genetic components of weight, driven by their hormones, which affects how hungry they are. But is this true for humans? 
Well, we haven't done impossible sausage experiments on people, but we do know that genetics are really important. Back to Giles. The heritability of body weight is around 50 to 70%. So we now know probably of about 300 or so more genes that are, that, that, that are involved. And those genes happen to influence your feeding behavior. So the genetics of body weight, we begin to realize, is almost by definition the genetics of how your brain controls your feeding behavior. Like dogs, it seems that our genetics affect how much we want to eat and how full we feel. And again, it seems like it's not the hormonal changes that are important here, but it's the sensing of those signals from the receptors that are key. There is no evidence that shows that the actual genetics of the hormonal levels influences, at the moment at any rate, interestingly, influences your body weight. There are genes that, that encode for those signals, of course, but the genetics of body weight appears to indicate that it's in the sensing rather than in the signals that, that influences your body weight. And even tiny differences in our receptor sensitivity can have a big impact on our body weight. So imagine you've had a big meal. Okay, I don't know, um, 1,000 calories, 1,500 calories, whatever. Say 1,000 calories. But um, imagine if your brain is slightly insensitive to the signals and only senses 800 calories. Well, then your brain's going to think, well, I'm going to need to eat more to make my 1,000 calories, driving you to eat more, even though you've already had the 1,000 calories. And in that way, you or, and I could be sat eating exactly the same meal. We've ordered exactly the same thing off the menu, but yet I might feel hungrier than you, even when we finished everything, because my brain is slightly less sensitive to the signals that actually emerge after the meal. And because no two brains are alike, we all have different receptor sensitivities. This is a big part of why our weights are so different. You know, body weight in many, many ways is not a choice. You might say, well, that's silly. I've chosen to eat this pizza today. And you're right. Each meal could be considered a binary choice and probably is. But we do not gain weight or lose weight overnight, sadly. Um, our body weight, such as it is now, is the function of thousands of different food decisions that have been made over the past few years, correct? Now, imagine that because of your genes, you are 5% less likely to say no, okay, in any given binary situation. So over thousands of different decisions, 5% less likely to say no is thousands, tens of thousands of different calories, which is why different people are different in sizes. Someone who's skinny simply finds it easier to say no. So, big question, are my hormones making me fat? Can we blame them? Why don't I like blame? I, I, don't, I don't like blame because, two, two, two different reasons, because when you say blame, then, then you can almost give it, use it as an excuse. I guess you could, technically speaking. But it's not deterministic, I guess is my point. People think that genetics, particularly in these complex characteristics, such as body weight, People think that your genes gives you a point in space and time, meaning that your genes indicate you're going to be 78.2 kilograms, when this is not the case. What happens is your genes bracket some possibilities, okay? So in other words, because of someone's genes, you're never, ever going to be a stick insect, okay? You're never, ever going to be really, really skinny. But that doesn't mean that within the range of possibilities that you have, you can't be heavier and lighter than you might actually be. So... Your hormones do influence your bracket of possibilities, but you can do something about it. I guess the, the analogy that I use is the hand of poker analogy, where you can have good hands and you can have bad hands, but you can actually win with a bad hand of poker, even though it's more difficult.
So our genetics, via our hormones, and specifically their receptors, are a huge part of what makes us the size we are. But as Giles said, it's the hand you're dealt that doesn't mean we can't win. It's just going to be harder. And just like knowing the rules of poker can help, does knowing how our hormones work help us work with our bodies rather than against them? I'm Jose Areta. I'm a lecturer in sports nutrition and metabolism at Liverpool John Moores University and I do research at the Research Institute for Sports and Exercise Sciences. Jose's work looks at what happens when the amount of food we eat suddenly isn't enough to sustain our activities, aka the crash diet. People don't eat enough calories uh, to maintain their normal physiological function. And this can, can be done, you know, by either complete fasting or, you know, reducing energy intake drastically by eating like very little This stands to reason, right? Reduce your food intake and you need to use fat stores to maintain your energy levels. Bye-bye fat stores. There's just one little problem. The body doesn't really like to lose weight. Basically, there's a quite deep hormonal change that makes our bodies and our behavior uh, sort of hold on to the weight that, that we have. Very low calorie diets basically can reduce body weight, you know, quite quick early on, the first, let's say, few weeks or months. But, you know, long term, they don't seem to be uh, as effective as other, you know, more normal ways of uh, lo- losing weight. And this is thanks to our hormones, who helpfully alert the brain when we reduce the amount we eat. One uh, hormone released by, by the gut that is called ghrelin uh, increases uh, our hunger when we are not eating. This is something that goes from basically our, our guts to our brains and increasing the, 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 the level of hunger. And of course, there's our old friend leptin, the hormone released by fat. Our brains get used to the levels of leptin, even sometimes desensitized. And so when that level drops, our brains are not happy. When there's not uh, enough uh, dietary energy available, even without changes in these like fat mass cells, there is a decrease in, in leptin. And this also drives an increase in, in hunger and a whole lot of other cascade of uh, responses that uh, regulate energy balance. So you're more hungry, which will surprise exactly no one who's ever been on a diet. But that's not all. So when you're not eating uh, enough calories, you know, there's a decrease in this uh, um, hormone that, you know, drives a decrease in, for example, resting metabolic rate. So at at rest, uh, your body uses less energy and is uh, partly driven by uh, the the effect of uh, this hormone. In other words, you start burning fewer calories. A dramatic decrease in food like this effectively sounds the alarm in your system that there's not enough food, and your body does everything it can think of to get you back up to where you were before. It's kind of like your your phone going in power saving mode. What the system does is uh, uh, saving energy for the uh, essential processes for survival, i.e. the phone staying on and and you being able to make a phone call and then sort of taking energy from the systems that are not immediately necessary for survival. Which makes sense. Back in the day, before the supermarket, if we were running low on food, we had to preserve what energy we had to maximise our chance of making it to the next meal. Uh, So we don't have a, a physiology adapted for the modern style of life where there's so much food available 
and we exercise so little. So basically we are tooled with a, with a set of uh, responses that allows us to survive in a very different environment from the environment that we live in. And this is likely one of the reasons why we see the degree of overweight that, for example, we see today in, in the UK is around 60% of the population is overweight or obese. And these quite dramatic hormonal changes can actually be quite dangerous. This cascade of events then can also be related to reducing bone metabolism and lead to weaker bones or reduce uh, skeletal muscle mass. You know, the skeletal muscle protein synthesis uh, decreases. So your bones get weaker and you basically become hardwired to try and keep as much of your fat as possible. So if you are trying to lose weight, crash dieting is definitely something to stay away from. Jose recommends slower, long-term food plans which involve getting enough protein and exercising regularly, which are not going to send your body into this panic and have your hormones working against you. And I think uh, this is an important message for people who are trying to lose weight, to do it, you know, to try to do it in a healthier way. So hormones can make us more likely to be overweight and make it harder to lose that weight. And this might be why the diet industry is worth billions, with new fads and weight loss promises around every corner. Sometimes things work, sometimes they don't, and sometimes they're flat out dangerous. But will we ever see a science-backed weight loss intervention which can basically override our hormones, make us feel less hungry? A diet pill, if you will. A quick look on Google and you'll know that slim pills are not the stuff of the future. They're for sale right now. But this stuff is buyer beware. Some of it simply won't work and some of the stuff you can get online will contain chemicals that have been banned. It's not easy to create a pill that can make us feel full. But our gut hormones might be able to get around this. All of your gut hormones, bar one, okay, make you feel fuller. Ghrelin is the only one that actually makes you feel hungrier. Um, but everything else that comes from the, from the gut all make you feel fuller. So you just add in a hormone that's meant to make you feel fuller. It slips into the brain, targets exactly the right neurons and wham, no battling the hunger pangs all day. And so that is probably going to be the best chance we have of a, of a treatment therapeutically for obesity. But this isn't something that's widely available yet for a couple of very good reasons. First, there, you have to inject because you can't just eat it. We haven't uh, figured out a way of getting it past the stomach effectively yet, okay? The, the cauldron of the stomach. The acidic churning cauldron, which takes apart most molecules. Not an ideal place for a delicate little structure. So most of these take the form of injections, not nearly as palatable. But, but secondly, there is a, only a small therapeutic window. The other role that gut hormones play is to make you puke, right? Why is that? Well, that's because if you have, if you have food poisoning, say, for example, you eat anything and suddenly you realize toxin, okay, what you've got to do is before it gets absorbed into the body and kills you, eject, eject, eject. And so what happens is your, your, your gut hormones really go up and you go, Ugh! okay? So that is another biological uh, uh, role of gut hormones. But there are some treatments out there that are solving these issues. They're gut hormone mimetics. They look to our body like gut hormones, and pharmacologists have managed to get doses that don't lead to spewing. One drug has developed an oral form only last year, which can slip past the stomach effectively, and was tested as a treatment for obesity this year. But there's still a problem. No hormone is an island. 
the, the hormonal milieu in our blood is not just one hormone. That's just not the way we work. It is, it is the mix of hormones, but there's so many that I think to get the full effectiveness, we're going to need to understand the full mix, not just of one, but 10, 20, 30 hormones mixed together. That's very complex. So while we're getting pretty good at learning what individual hormones do, getting the precise recipe of the hormonal stew that would be most effective is a whole different story. But there is another type of treatment for obesity that might help us crack it. Bariatric surgery. Bariatric surgery is the replumbing of your guts. Um, the most popular one is something called Rouen Y, in which you reduce your stomach volume to just about a teaspoon, tablespoon, pardon me, and you remove about a meter of gut, meter to a meter and a half of small gut. That seems very, very small. Ah, most of my meals are many tablespoons. <laughs> so, so many tablespoons. So here's the interesting thing, right? So, so the design of that, they were assuming that well, if we do this, then you can eat you absorb less, you lose weight. It turns out that that's not the way it works. First, reducing your stomach to a tablespoon sounds very drastic, but actually, numerous studies have now shown that actually, your stomach copes, okay? And you can actually eat quite a lot, even with a tablespoon-sized stomach, and your stomach begins to change in size again. So your stomach can stretch and shift things around, maybe team up with the second stomach for dessert, and still technically consume just as much. But this surgery still works. So why? The vast majority is the change in hormones, your gut hormones. Because your food goes down your guts and gets digested as it goes down. So if you remove a portion of gut, food that is less digested ends up further down the gut. Okay, And because food that is less digested ends up further down the gut, it changes gut hormone levels, which, as I already said, makes you feel fuller. You eat less, you, you lose weight. Right, so it worked, but not for the reasons people thought it would. Yeah, yeah, as with most things in life. <laughs> but it does, but it does, uh, but it does work, yeah. So if we can mimic this process, find out what the hormonal level changes are and copy them with a drug, this could be the real key to an effective diet pill. Because while bariatric surgery is effective, it's still not ideal. Bariatric surgery is a major operation and it is permanent. And so many people don't want to do that. And so taking something like a, a therapeutic um, mimic of bariatric surgery, I think is far more palatable to many people. There have been experiments in which people were given a mixture of these gut hormone mimetics and they were effective. People started losing weight without the surgery. So while there are challenges ahead before this comes mainstream, it's definitely coming, which should be a game changer for the people who need it. So hormones clearly have a massive influence on our body weight. And while they're not the only factor that affects weight, the societal and economic factors also playing their part, they do bear a significant portion of the load. We're basically living in bodies that have adapted for years to try and survive in uncertain food conditions. And they're just not set up for the supermarket shelves of today, especially when the cheaper food tends to be the least healthy and their tendency to hold on to weight can make dieting a frustrating process. But the more we understand about the hormones at play and the more we can try and make sure we attain a healthy body weight safely and importantly, without being shamed. As Giles says, while body weight is something we can control, we shouldn't judge someone else for theirs unless we've walked a mile in their hormones. I just think it's important for people to know that uh, your body weight is not a choice. Okay, so people who are who are heavier, who are obese, are not bad. They are fighting their biology. And while we need to eat less to lose weight, I think we as a society need to know that 
for some people, it will always be more difficult than others. And we have to understand that to put together a long-term cogent strategy for us to be able to solve the problem. Thank you to Giles Yeo, Eleanor Raffin and Jose Loretta for helping out with the very first episode of Hormones the Inside Story. Next time, we'll be heading to the land of Nod to find out about the hormones that help us sleep and, more importantly, what happens when our sleep pattern changes. Remember jet lag? You know, from when travel was a thing? Is it possible to hack our hormones to help us shift time zones? And most importantly of all, what happens to a horse without an alarm clock? Join me next time to find out. You and Your Hormones is a podcast from the Society for Endocrinology. Explore more about the world of hormones at yourhormones.info. Follow them on Twitter at, at SOC underscore ENDO and find them online at endocrinology.org. This show was produced by me, Georgia Mills. Katani is the executive producer and it was made by First Create the Media. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. <laughs>